Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Hi, Peter. Hey, Lori. Lori, so many interesting things in the news this week. And I'm just going to start in California, where new legislation would prohibit the sale of animal-tested cosmetics. Did you hear about that one? Yeah. So this is called the California Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act, SB 1249, and it was introduced just the other day uh, in the California State Legislature, and uh, the bill would prohibit the sale of animal-tested cosmetics in the state. Isn't that great? Fantastic news. It would make it unlawful for any cosmetic manufacturer to knowingly import or sell any cosmetic, including personal hygiene products, such as deodorant, shampoo, or conditioner, in California if the final product or any component of the product was tested on animals after January 1, 2020. A violation result in the fine of up to $500 for the first violation, up to $1,000 for each subsequent violation, each probably each sale of an item, which is incredible. So uh, it's sponsored by uh, Social Compassion in Legislation. That's Skill. That's led by Judy Mancuso. She's been on the show a couple of times. Yeah. Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And also it's supported by Cruelty Free International and Lush Cosmetics. And, you know, this is so important because, you know, if California passes this, chances are the rest of the country is going to follow. Because if you want to sell in California, you're not going to want to have two versions of your products, right? Yeah, this is huge news. Yeah. So it's very exciting. Uh, It's uh, the California Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act. And if you live in California, you call your legislators and tell them to support it. It's very important. Okay, and Lori, here's another interesting and sad development happening in the world of a human narcotic addiction and its intersection with our animals and veterinarians, and that is that uh, vets are reporting that people are harming their own animals and doing other things to animals in order to obtain pain medications, which they can then use themselves. Is that crazy? So sad. So uh, animal owners are coming into vet offices claiming that the animal is in pain and trying to obtain medicines like tramadol, for instance, which humans can also take. And yet the animals don't really seem to have anything wrong with them. And if you're not on your guard, you can dispense these medications. An employee at one vet office moved to another and then saw the same client there. And the client had been visiting multiple vet offices, all for her own benefit. The other thing that happens is actual injuries to animals that are inflicted. That's a way to get more drugs. One veterinarian stated that she no longer prescribes those long-acting narcotic patches to the dogs because of an instance where someone jumped into the backyard where this dog was and ripped the patch off the dog. So uh, that addict could uh, enjoy the Substance, not the craziest thing. That's just incredible. I wonder if veterinarians can report these owners to the proper authorities for charges of animal abuse. Well, I'm sure they can do that, but there's another thing they can do, and they can go on to the online registry and see what the people are up to. But it's really a, a crazy phenomenon of uh, desperate, ad- addicted people just harming their animals. It's very uh, sad. Peter, I got one here. You know, there's been many articles that have come out about the risks of the retractable dog leashes for you, your dog, and for others. Yeah, I don't like them. 
Yeah, I don't like them either. We never use them. What these retractable leashes are, they have these thin cords that extend from and retract into a plastic handle. And these leashes pose lots of dangers. First off, retractable leashes extend too far. Some of them can reach up to 30 feet in length. So allowing your dog to run freely into dangerous places or things like running into the street, charging up to people or other dogs and darting in front of bicycles or trip passerbys in populated areas. The leashes easily tangle. Your dog's running around obstacles, getting the leash tangled, and you and your dog can be both caught up in it. This creates a danger of falling or being injured by the leash itself, which is a thin cord and can cause damage to legs, hands, and other body parts that become wrapped up in it. Or similarly, trying to grab the leash itself to pull your dog back from something can lead to injuries, including cord burns, lacerations, and even finger amputations. Peter, did you see some of the pictures that went along with these articles? Yeah, gnarly. Yeah, gnarly. And again, both harming you and potentially your dog too. Retractable leashes have handles that are large and unwieldy. They're hard to handle and easy to drop, leading to many other possible dangers. If you're walking your dog on a hard surface and accidentally drop the handle, the noise and sudden retraction may scare even a non-timid dog, causing her to run away from you. And it's much more difficult for a person to control the weight of a dog that is so far in front of them than one that is close to them. Your dog may also reach the end of the leash and keep running full speed, which they can be jerked back and possibly result in severe neck, throat, or spine injuries, which has happened. Oh boy, like the uh, calf roping deal. Right, exactly. Or if a large dog, the leash can snap at the end of the rope and your dog can escape. You know, the part about the bicycle, that is especially scary to me. I, you know, you're a cyclist, you're huffing and puffing and you say, okay, I'm going to give four, six feet of clearance from the pedestrians, but you don't think that the dog can get out as far as uh, he or she might. And even with a regular leash, I worry about the bicycle. Well, that's true. The bike people, that's another story. Okay. (laughs) And Lori, here's some news from the United Kingdom. It's finally, finally been agreed that wild animals are going to be banned from the circuses there. That's been a long process, and there are only two operating circuses that have wild animal licenses, and between them, they only have less than a couple of dozen animals. But finally, in 2020, uh, no more licenses are going to be issued, and that's going to be the end of wild animals in circuses in England. Already similar bans have been passed in Scotland and Ireland, and they're discussing it in Wales. So good progress and good news. And you've got one more interesting one over there, right? Yeah, you know, I want to direct listeners to an article written by a fish biologist named Laura McDonald. It's all about why she does not eat fish. And it's an interesting read because she is not a vegan advocate. In fact, I disagree with a lot of what she says about the health benefits of of certain fish and uh, she continues to eat some meat also uh, but it comes from her perspective of someone who knows what's happening in the oceans and it's not even based on animal cruelty either so she's just making two main points in in this article the first is that the issue of mislabeling of fish and other sea creatures is rampant so if you go to a restaurant or a fish market and think you're buying one thing it's very likely you're not getting what you think you are 
And she cites, for instance, a study in 2011 uh, from Canada where they sampled more than 200 seafood items obtained from various retailers and restaurants, and they found that 41% were misidentified. And she further went on that in some cases, what you're getting is not even seafood. A sampling of caviar from Romania and Bulgaria found that 10% of the samples were not even animals. They might have been soy or something like that. So buyer beware. And secondly, of course, is the huge issue of microplastics. You know, our seas are just filled with uh, plastics and they don't biodegrade. They just get smaller and smaller and smaller and they are ingested by the fish and the other creatures in the sea. And so you can expect that when you consume them, you are probably taking in little bits of plastics too. Now, the science on this and the medical consequences for people consuming this are really not well established yet. But just keep in mind that whatever you're eating from the sea, you're probably ingesting a fair amount of plastic as well. So that's by Laurel McDonald. Look it up. It was first published in The Walrus about why she does not eat fish. And of course, we don't eat fish for lots of reasons, including those. Very good, Peter. This was in the Denver Post last month. Wildlife bridges and underpasses led to a dramatic decline in animal-related car crashes. According to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, roads all over the state run right through these migration paths. When they go back and forth, a lot of animals are hit on the highway every year. Lisa Schwantes, communications manager for Colorado Department of Transportation, said the five underpasses and two overpasses that cross Colorado 9 south of Kremling have reduced wildlife-related crashes by almost 90%. Statistics obtained by the Colorado Department of Transportation show that from 2006 to 2016 on U.S. 160 in the area between Durango and Bayfield, there were 472 car animal collisions, a large number of them involving mule deer. Mm. And since vehicle wildlife collisions are often underreported, this number could be even higher. Photographs taken with a remote camera of one of the underpass crossings show the passageway is being used by deer, coyotes, raccoon, and other small animals. CDOT, that's the... Colorado Department of Transportation. Right, has teamed up with Colorado Parks and Wildlife to conduct a study identifying other key wildlife crossing spots throughout the state. Jeff Pedersen, Wildlife Program Manager for CDOT, states, we have to make sure that if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. That's why we don't just throw them anywhere we can. Putting the correct crossings in the correct place for the species you want to get from one place to another, that's where it gets tricky. Crossings can cost anywhere from $300,000 up to more than a million dollars. The crossings are paid for by CDOT using tax dollars, but the lack of them ends up being expensive as well, since insurance companies estimate damages to vehicles from wildlife collisions averages about $4,000 per incident. So there you go. Good idea, I think. Good idea and great story and good follow-up. Stick around more with Animals Today after this break. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. 
And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website. That's animalstodayradio.com or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes. And when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. A few weeks ago in Manhattan, Connecticut-based Friends of Animals conducted a protest I thought you might be interested in hearing about. Looking cold but determined, photos published in the New York Daily News documented the group's position against trophy hunting and Eric Trump in particular. I want to welcome Nicole Rivard, correspondent with Friends of Animals, who participated and, I've just learned, helped organize this thing. Hi, Nicole. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Okay, so what was the purpose of holding this rally or demonstration? So I'll give you a little bit of history. The worldwide rally against trophy hunting actually originated with um, Compassion Works International, and it was called Rally for Cecil originally because it started after an American trophy hunter killed Cecil the lion in Zimbabwe back in 2015. And it started as a, a big protest outside Safari Club International's annual convention in Las Vegas. And then it turned into sister protests and rallies on the same day in cities around the world. So Friends of Animals partnered with Compassion Works in New York because we have drafted legislation, it's called Save Africa's Big Five, that would actually ban the importation, possession, sale, or transportation in New York of the trophies of the African elephant, lion, leopard, and black and white rhinos. Tell us what happened. Well, we start. We picked Eric Trump's apartment building this year because we know he's gone on trophy hunting excursions and that resulted in the deaths of, of a leopard and an elephant. I think it was back in 2011 and 2012. And of course, because President Trump has been posting these meaningless tweets about trophy hunting. And for us, the biggest takeaway from these tweets and from a recent decision by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is that we can't rely on these fluid federal laws anymore to make sure Africa's big five don't go extinct. So we feel that states like, you know, like New York have to pass their own legislation. And for those who don't know, New York is actually, there's 18 ports of entry for animal trophies coming into the U.S. and New York is the busiest one. Oh, I see. So if you pass a law in New York, any trophies that are even coming through would not even be allowed. 
Exactly. And in, in, in our bill, it's called Save Africa's Big Five. It would um, just affect the African elephant, lion, leopard, and the black and white rhinos. Okay, so I saw the uh, published photographs. You are very determined looking, as I mentioned. Um, uh, tell us how this progressed. I mean, you know, it, you, it, it was peaceful. There were definitely police there, lots of police there. But, I mean, it was it was to keep us safe as well. And, you know, we took turns talking about um, why trophy hunting is so awful and why legislation like Save Africa Big Five bill is so important. And then we, we did some chanting, and we actually marched over to Trump Tower. And we got a lot of people clapping and giving us a thumbs up and people beeping, you know, tooting their horns because we had a lot of um, imagery and posters and we were handing out some educational materials to people passing by. Well, that's great to hear that the New Yorkers, and I will uh, disclose I am a native New Yorker, uh, <laughs> gave you uh, a lot of encouragement. I love, love hearing that. I mean, what people may not know is, you know, these tweets that the president has put out there, they, they really are meaningless. Um, they've done nothing to change U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's kind of hurried, irrational decision to reverse that that three-year policy that prohibited U.S. hunters from importing elephant trophies from Zimbabwe. So despite those tweets, nothing's changed. And uh, Mr. Zinke himself, he uh, has got a history. He's a big supporter of hunting. And in fact, since he's been in office, he's been trying to open up our own public lands to more hunting. And, you know, we know it's because hunting is actually going, you know, the number of hunters in the United States is actually going down. And, and we think it's the hunting industry's desperate attempt to kind of drum up business and, and get new customers by opening them up these new opportunities here and abroad, you know, for the people that are still hunting. Is the legislation you are trying to put forth, are you aware of any other states uh, that have a similar law or in place or legislation pending like this? So, I'm aware that Washington State passed legislation, but they, it didn't have to go through the legislature. I think it was a, a ballot decision. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we're, you know, we, I, I should thank Senator Tony Avella and Assemblymember Louis Sepulveda for being the co-sponsors on this bill. It's it's in the Environment Committee now. And again, we, we use the rally and the protest as an opportunity to, to get people listening and to tell them, you know, contact their state senators and assembly members to help move it forward out of the Environment Committee so it could go towards a full vote. What's your feeling about the understanding of your ordinary New Yorker about uh, what's going on with these big five uh, animals? Are they aware of how critical the situation is and do they have a strong opinion about what to do about it? What I think, I think people maybe are, are maybe aware of what's going on. Maybe that's because of what happened to Cecil. Yeah. It kind of raised awareness that people were doing this. But sometimes I think maybe people don't think what they do here in New York would actually 
affect these animals in Africa. What I I don't think they realize, though, that that New York is the busiest port of entry. And we know that because of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service data from 2005 to 2014, more than 150,000 trophy hunted animals were imported into New York. Mm. And out of those, there were 1,130 elephant trophies. 1,541 lions, 1,169 leopards, Mm. and 110 white rhinos. So the only way this law is going to get passed is by them, you know, telling their legislators that they want it passed. And and look, I mean, it would have an impact. It would have saved, you know, those thousands of animals, which I think they could feel good about. Because I do, like I said, I think there are... (laughs) The majority of New Yorkers are non-hunters, but the problem is, you know, the Safari Club International, the NRA, while they're in the minority, they, they talk louder. <laughs> we need the, the non-hunting majority to, to speak up. Go. That's right. And we want them to know they can make a difference. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful work. We'll encourage all New York residents to contact your legislators and tell them how you feel about this. And I want to thank you, Nicole Rivard from Friends of Animals. This is the first time we're speaking with a representative of the organization. It's a pleasure getting to know you. Oh, you too. I I can't wait to come back. (laughs) And more with Animals Today after the break. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Not long ago, there was a flyer placed on my car windshield by a guy inviting people and their dogs to his rattlesnake avoidance training. And it made me wonder, how much of a risk do snakes like rattlesnakes pose to our dogs? Of course, we're coming to you here in the Southern California desert, and there are lots of snakes. So what can you do to protect your dogs from snakes? And what should you do if a bite occurs? I'm pleased to welcome back to the show veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed, medical director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Hi, Robert. Hi, Peter. How are you? So let's just start talking about uh, rattlesnakes and, and pets and, I guess, dogs specifically. What, what do we need to know about rattlesnakes? Well, there's a, there's a few fun facts about rattlesnakes that you might find interesting and helpful. Um, one is that they are an American snake. They're native to um, north, south, and central America. Um, there are probably 32 to 36 known species of rattlesnakes. They occur in all parts of North America, but certainly in greatest numbers in the southwest, in Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and California. Um, we have a number of encounters every year with rattlesnakes between people and dogs, but fortunately they don't usually bite unless they're provoked or they feel threatened 
or we catch them by surprise. They do have a number of uh, natural predators besides us that you, you may or may not know about. The most uh, popular one is the king snake, particularly in California, which is a type of snake that actually eats rattlesnakes and one we want to encourage as much as we can if we want to keep rattlesnake numbers in check. But we don't necessarily want to eliminate rattlesnakes from our environment because they, they have a useful role in the ecosystems. And of course, rattlesnakes uh, are uh, part of nature. There's no reason why we should not want to try to live with them. Yeah. But learning to live with them involves a few tips, um, some effort to try to minimize the risk to ourselves and to our pets. So this flyer that was on my windshield uh, by the fellow who wants to train our dogs, is he uh, on the right track here? Is this a useful service? This is something that's only come up recently in the last few years where people have developed ways to expose dogs to snakes in a manner that's both safe for the dog and not harmful to the snake. Um, It usually means putting some sort of bubble or hood over the head of the snake so that it's not able to strike, but a dog can still experience the snake's uh, scent, sounds, appearance, and can learn what a snake looks like without being endangered by it. Important thing to remember, though, in a rattlesnake avoidance training, that almost always involves some sort of shock being administered to the dog as a negative enforcement Mm. during exposure to the snake. So even though I think it's a very useful service and it can provide a lot of benefit in an area that's prone to snake encounters, it is something that does involve that that type of, uh, of treatment. And everyone should at least be comfortable with it before they take part in it. What should people do when they've got their dogs out? First and most important thing, if you're walking with your dog in a snake area, is to have the dog on a leash. And it should be a leash that, that's fixed, not an extendable leash, and no more than six feet long, so you can keep your dog that close to you in case you encounter a snake. The most likely your dog is going to be walking in front of you with their nose near the ground, and they will find the snake before you do, mm-hmm. and you want to be able to pull them away if you encounter a snake. Uh, most of the time, snakes will give you a warning. Rattlesnakes will give you or your dog a warning before they strike, uh, and that, of course, is associated with the rattle, and we usually hear that and know that we need to back away. Uh, I think a safe distance for most snakes is going to be six to eight feet. It really depends on the size of the snake, but you would want to you know, pull your dog and remove yourself slowly away from uh, in, in distance from the snake. Another thing to remember is when you're choosing a place to hike, um, try to stay on trails that or pathways that are wide, that don't have a lot of brush or, or rock around the edges. Stay on established trails and try not to go cross country where you might encounter more brush or rocks where snakes might be hidden. And how about around the home? What do you do not to attract snakes and for that matter, other animals that you don't want around, around your house? Well, I think this is probably true for a lot of animals um, that you don't want coming to your house. You don't provide a lot of places for them to hide. And for snakes in particular, you try to avoid leaving piles of brush or boards or stones around the house that they can hide under because they don't really like to be sitting out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, they much, much prefer to be hidden under things where they're not seen. And that's where you're, you're most likely to encounter one if you're reaching into something that they're hidden in or if a dog sticks his nose or his paw into an area where a snake is hiding. 
and there are some types of fences you can put around the yard to help deter snakes, but they're going to be fences that have really fine mesh or wire, I think maybe a quarter or a half an inch between the wires, and they should be uh, up to probably about three feet tall. Yeah. I would have them slightly angled outward, and I would make sure that the fencing extends under the ground for several inches at least to try to keep the snakes from coming in. So how risky is the venom to dogs? What can happen in a snake Well, bite? it's pretty bad. You know, it really depends on the snake. It depends on the size of the snake. It depends on the condition of the snake. Um, and of course, the species has an impact on what type of venom is injected. Um, the most common rattlesnakes um, are going to have just your basic hemotoxin, which affects the, the muscles, muscle fibers, causes intense swelling, and affects blood clotting. But it's extremely damaging to local tissues, and if, if, it's, if there's a severe envenomation, meaning a large amount of uh, venom in the body relative to the size of the dog, then there'll be a lot of fluid that's transferred to that area through the swelling, and a dog can go into shock. Mm. So it puts them at, at real risk for a secondary response that causes them, you know, that can cause them to die, but more likely will make them really, really sick and really, really uncomfortable. Of course, the smaller dogs are going to be at greater risk, and the larger the snake, the larger the likelihood of a large envenomation. But fortunately, not every bite yields a large envenomation, and in fact, probably one in five, maybe one in four, don't have any venom injected at all. Okay, and there's a vaccine, is that right? That's true, yeah, there is a vaccine uh, against rattlesnake venom. Um, it is believed to be fairly effective. It does not eliminate the need uh, to have treatment. I think every dog should still receive antivenin if they're bitten by a rattlesnake. But the vaccine is supposed to reduce the severity of the bite and to uh, reduce the antivenin requirements. Uh, it's something that we always recommend for dogs who um, who get out and about in a, a highly uh, affected rattlesnake area. So um, I definitely would encourage anyone who's concerned about that to check with their veterinarian about it. Uh, it is a shot that's given as a two-shot series initially, a month apart, and then usually repeated every six months if there's a high risk of exposure. So let's say your dog is bitten. I guess you want to figure out what kind of snake was responsible if you can and then get them to care as quickly as possible. It's very helpful. I think it, certainly if you think your dog has been bitten by a snake, and most of the time it's going to be a, a diamondback. The, the western diamondback is by far the most common cause of most of uh, rattlesnake bites in the U.S. Um, you're going to see a lot of swelling, a lot of pain around the bite. You may see some puncture wounds probably some drooling, maybe some pawing at the area. If you see that, then I, even if you think your dog has been bitten by a rattlesnake, I would take him to a facility that has antivenin in stock. Um, that's usually going to be an emergency hospital or a facility that's used to dealing with emergencies. And, of course, if you want to make sure it's a place that's open, say if it happens on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a bad idea if you're taking your dog into a rattlesnake area to know where you would go if that happened, because time is really important. Antivenin is not highly effective if it's given more than four hours after a bite. So it should be started pretty soon. 
So once it started, once they're treated with Anabin and they tend to recover pretty well, most of them will survive, but every dog should be treated with Anabin and if possible. Um, the type of snake can have a little bit to do with it because some snakes carry toxins that are more intense than others. The most notorious that we have in California is the Mojave or Mojave Green rattlesnake, which carries a neurotoxin component as well as the hemotoxin. So it causes the muscle damage and the blood clotting problems as well as neurologic problems, and it is therefore more dangerous. So if we think that the bite has been from a Mojave rattlesnake, then we're going to react much more aggressively than we would if it was just a, a diamondback or another rattlesnake. So there's a, a couple other things you may want to remember about rattlesnakes in general. Uh, they tend to be most active in the spring and the fall. They like to be out in the morning, especially after a cool night, they'll be seen sunning themselves, uh, trying to warm up. In the summer, they're going to be more active at nighttime. In the winter, most snakes go into uh, a state of near hibernation, and they're not going to be seen. You're unlikely to encounter them. The length of that period depends a lot on where you are and how cold it gets. Mm -hmm. Okay, Robert, well, you know I am going to stay on the paths and keep our dogs on their leashes. Uh, hopefully that'll keep us safe. That's that Dr. sounds like a great idea. <laughs> That's Dr. Robert Reed, Medical Director, BCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. That's in Rancho Mirage, California. Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. And more with animals today after the break. back to animals today peter yes Lori. hello march 14th is learn about butterflies day mm. we've never talked about butterflies no, on animals so. today mm. so we're going to discuss some really cool facts about the butterfly and incorporate a quiz into these fascinating butterfly facts <laughs> okay so you ready i'm ready Butterflies, as you know, are these beautiful, brightly colored flying insects with two pairs of large wings that vary in color and pattern depending on the species. Peter, true or false? The wings are transparent. That is false. Wrong. <laughs> the wings are actually clear. The colors and patterns we see are made by the reflection of the tiny scales covering them. It doesn't make sense, but okay. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it's false. <laughs> I know. True or false, butterflies range in size from a tiny one-eighth of an inch to a huge almost 12 inches. I'm going to say that's true. It is true. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Yep. Imagine a 12-inch Right, butterfly. landing on your shoulder. Oh, my God. Oh, don't. Hi. <laughs> With the exception of a few specific species, an adult butterfly has a very short life, just three to four weeks. Peter, true or false, butterflies can fly in all temperatures. In all temperatures? I'm going to say that's false. It is false. Butterflies need an ideal body temperature of about 85 degrees Fahrenheit to fly. Since they're cold-blooded animals, they can't regulate their own body temperature. The surrounding air temperature has a big impact on their ability to function. Mm -hmm. So if the air temperature falls below 55 degrees Fahrenheit, butterflies are rendered immobile, unable to flee from predators or feed. When air temperatures range between 82 degrees and 100 degrees, butterflies can fly with ease. Mm. 
True or false, adult butterflies feed primarily on other insects. I'm going to say that's true. That's false. Uh, Adult butterflies can only feed on liquids, usually nectar. Oh, yeah. Their mouth parts are modified to enable them to drink, but they can't chew solids. Butterflies have a long tube-like tongue called a proboscis that allows them to soak up their food. One of its first jobs as an adult butterfly is to assemble its mouth parts. You may see a newly emerged butterfly curling and uncurling the proboscis over and over testing it out oh that's neat isn't that cool yeah true or false butterflies taste with this tube-like tongue the proboscis Mm, that sounds like false to me it is false Ah. butterflies taste with their feet Oh, wow. Butterflies have taste receptors on their feet. A female butterfly lands on different plants, drumming the leaves with her feet until the plant releases its juices. Spines on the back of her legs have chemoreceptors that detect the right match of plant chemicals. When she identifies the right plant, she lays her eggs. So after mating, the female butterfly lays her eggs on a caterpillar food or quote, host plant. The eggs can hatch when the conditions are just right and caterpillars can start eating their host plant right away. Peter, the process by which a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly is called Mm. what? Metamorphosis. Yeah, you remember your biology. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is completed in about 10 to 15 days, depending on the species. A group of butterflies is sometimes called what? A herd... A flutter, Mm. a pack, or a litter? Total guess flutter. It's flutter. Yeah. A litter of butterflies. That would be weird. (laughs) I had to think of some. (laughs) Peter, you and I being ophthalmologists, we know that a normal human eye has one natural lens in it, right? Yep. Butterflies' eyes are made of how many lenses? Oh, like a compound lens, maybe. I'm going to say a thousand lenses. One 10, 160, or 6,000? Oh, 6,000. It is 6,000 lenses. That is so cool. Yeah, 6,000 lenses and can see ultraviolet light. There are about 17,500 species of butterflies spread throughout almost the entire world. Butterflies are found on every continent. Except? Except? Except Antarctica? Yes. Okay. Well, it's cold there. They can't. Very good. Wouldn't wouldn't work out. Okay. You're a pretty smart guy. Okay. Yeah. So many species migrate to avoid adverse conditions like the cold, right? Most migrate relatively short distances, but monarchs and several other species migrate thousands of miles. With respect to the monarch butterfly, they are the only insect that migrates an average of 2,500 miles to find a warmer climate. Well, that's really fascinating. You don't think of the movement of a butterfly as being so efficient that it can get you very far. It's interesting. Butterfly wings move in a figure eight motion. Butterflies flap all its wings at the same time at about five beats per second. So the defense mechanisms of the butterfly, well, there are a few ways they defend themselves from predators. One method is disguise or called cryptic Coloration, where the butterfly has the ability to look like a leaf or blend into the bark of a tree to hide from predators. Mm -hmm. Another method is chemical defense, where the butterfly has evolved to have toxic chemicals in its body. These species of butterflies are often brightly colored, and predators have learned over time to associate their bright color with the bad taste of the chemicals. 
Well, the greatest threats to butterflies are habitat change and loss due to residential, commercial, and agricultural development. Mm -hmm. And there you go, Peter. March 14th, learn about Butterflies Day. Okay, I learned about butterflies. I needed that. Thank you. What do you got there? Well, it's sort of uh, semi-saliva related. (laughs) It's a nice uh, story. In Santa Monica, a firefighter recently saved a dog using so-called mouth-to-snout resuscitation. This, uh, this uh, Bichon mixed dog, 10 years old, was uh, found unresponsive by firefighter Andrew Klein during an apartment fire in Santa Monica. The dog was not breathing and did not have a pulse, according to the fire captain. The firefighter said, I just grabbed him. He knew he was unresponsive and decided he just needed to bring him back. He used mouth-to-snout CPR, and they also gave supplemental oxygen. It took 20 minutes for the dog to begin breathing on his own again, and the dog ended up fine. That's so great. It was really a, a great story, and yes, it's a great story. There are some details that are not included here. For instance, whether chest compressions were given, because earlier in the story, they do say he did not have a pulse, so usually you'd want to lay the dog on the side and give chest compressions and also do the breathing. And I also read that in mouth to snout, if the dog is a larger dog, then you close the mouth and you just breathe through the nose. And in a smaller dog, you just put your mouth over the nose and the dog's mouth and breathe for them. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And similar to human resuscitation, first thing you need to do is what? You need to, you know, check the pulse, check the respirations, and then see if the airway is clear. And then if you think there's an obstruction, you do a doggy Heimlich by coming behind the dog and lifting the dog up and just, you know, doing a doggy Heimlich. Yeah. You know, pet owners really should refine their CPR for their animals, shouldn't they? They give courses on this. Yeah. And I bet you just going online, you can get a good feeling of what's going on here. Right. So thanks to uh, Andrew Klein saving that dog, the dog guardian said, I am just so grateful. Well, thanks so much for bringing that subject up, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.